Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 215, The Siege of Nicaea. Last time, we watched on as the major contingents of the First Crusade arrived at Constantinople. Alexius went to great lengths to court and control them, and above all else to get their armies away from the capital before they could do any damage. Having successfully moved them from Europe to Asia, the emperor directed them towards their first major target, the capital of the Sultanate of Rum, Nicaea. Nicaea was important for several reasons. It was the largest city in northwest Anatolia, and essentially guarded the most direct route onto the plateau. The crusaders had to take it in order to guard their supply lines as they made their way east. For the Romans, it was even more vital. Its capture would signal to the local Turks that they could no longer safely squat on imperial lands, opening up the possibility of retaking the wealthy west coast of Anatolia. Ideologically, the city had also come to be a thorn in the Byzantine side. Nicaea was a famous Christian city. It was the home of two major ecumenical councils, and for Muslims to hold it was a great shame. Possession of the city also gave legitimacy to the fledgling Turkic state. If Nicaea could be retaken, perhaps the Turks would be driven away from statehood. Maybe they would go back to just being tribal mercenaries who could one day be crushed as the Pechenegs had been. The foolishness of relinquishing Nicaea in the first place was evident to the Crusaders when they finally set eyes on it. The late antique walls stood thirty feet high, with over a hundred towers dotting the circuit. Though these walls had been rebuilt many times over the past millennium, the scale of them was still intimidating. Even more dispiriting for the Crusaders was the fact that the western walls were built right up against Lake Ascanius. There was no easy way to put pressure on this side of the city, given that the lake is twenty-five miles long. So even if men patrolled its shores day and night, it would still be child's play for Turkish boats to land somewhere and gain access to the outside world. This was the challenge that the Christian force faced as they approached the city. 
We closed last episode by saying that in June 1097, all of the Crusaders had crossed from Europe to Asia. But the story of their attack on Nicaea actually began a month before that. You might think that the Crusaders would all gather at Kibitos, do a headcount, and discuss strategy before moving on. But instead, several detachments marched on Nicaea, while half of their brethren were still in Europe. The reason being that there just wasn't enough room at Kibitos for 70,000 people. By the way, I'll be throwing numbers at you throughout the Crusades. They are simply the best guesses of modern scholars. Please don't take them literally. We talked about 100,000 people being on the move after the Crusades were preached. Most of the 15,000 or so on the People's Crusade were no longer a factor. And as I mentioned, thousands more were turned back at the Hungarian border, or had drowned in the Adriatic, or died somewhere else en route, or just gone home. 70,000 is the general estimate for those who gathered at Nicaea, with something like 7,500 cavalry and 35,000 infantry in amongst them. Anyway, the forces of Godfrey of Bouillon, Hugh of Vermandois, and Robert of Flanders set off in early May 1097 in order to create space behind them for their comrades. Bohemond's Normans were also with them, but Bohemond himself was still at the capital. To some extent, he was acting as Alexius's quartermaster and would arrive eight days later, having organized a supply train. The main Roman road between Nicomedia and Nicaea had been abandoned over the past 20 years. So the crusaders had to clear the way, cutting back trees and other overgrowth. They also planted crosses in the ground along the route so that those following wouldn't get lost. The army reached Nicaea on the 6th of May and camped before it without much purpose until Bohemond arrived and they could be sure of their supply lines. This was actually a very dangerous week during which a determined Turkic attack might have driven the crusaders away. But despite the sight of 20,000 besiegers settling in down the road, no sortie came. As I mentioned at the time, the annihilation of the People's Crusade the previous October had lulled the Sultan of Rum into a false sense of security. Despite hearing about Godfrey's men camping at Kibitos in February, the Sultan had decided to march east in early spring to Melitene almost 600 miles away. This sultan was Kilij Arslan, the son of Suleiman. Suleiman was the man who'd supplied Votaniates, Melisinos, and Alexius with troops for their civil wars. Suleiman had been on friendly terms with Alexius for a while, until he captured Antioch and began fighting with forces loyal to Baghdad. In the ensuing chaos, Suleiman was killed and his son had struggled to regain control of Nicaea. Once he did, though, Kilij Arslan was much more hostile to the Romans, sensing correctly that their true goal was to get rid of him. Kilij Arslan, by the way, like Alparslan, is not a name, it's a title, meaning Sword Lion, or The Sword of the Lion. Melitene, way off in the Armenian mountains, remained a key communication point between Anatolia and the Seljuk lands beyond. It was currently held by an Armenian general, professing loyalty to Baghdad while also remaining in contact with Constantinople. 
The details are less important than the fact that both the Turks of Nicaea and the Danishmen Turks were trying to capture the city. The Danishmens are the rival Turkic confederation operating in northeast Anatolia, what we would think of as the Armenia Khan. Sensing that the Danishmens might capture Melitene, Kilij Aslan had taken his army east to stop them. He was very confident that the few thousand Latins camped near Nicomedia posed no threat to his capital. But he was wrong. As soon as they began their march towards Nicaea, the Crusaders were spotted and counted by Turkish scouts. The arrival of reinforcements to Godfrey's eastern Franks was an alarming development, and so messengers raced east to tell their master that all was not well. Little did they know that the soldiers now camped outside Nicaea represented only half of the full force that was on its way. The Sultan raced home from Melitene as fast as he could. He really had made a terrible mistake. His treasury and his family were trapped inside Nicaea, and it's fair to say that his legitimacy was too. He probably had about 10,000 men at his back as he galloped across the Anatolian plateau, but every day messengers arrived to add another zero to their estimates of the number of crusaders now besieging his capital. Kilij Aslan arrived in the vicinity of Nicaea on the 15th of May, nine days after the Crusaders. With Bohemond's arrival the day before, the Latins had now properly invested the city. I've put up a map of the siege at the website which shows their disposition. The Normans camped near the north gate, while Godfrey and Robert of Flanders covered most of the eastern walls. The south of the city was left open for the remaining Crusaders to blockade, when they arrived. One Latin chronicle claims that a spy was found in their camp who told them that Kilij Aslan was on his way. The Crusaders responded by sending an urgent summons to Raymond of Toulouse, who was bringing his southern French troops slowly along the road from Nicomedia. Raymond kicked his men into high gear, and they were in position on the morning of the 16th in front of the south gate. They hadn't made their camp yet, and in their dishevelled state, Arslan saw his best chance of reaching the city. He burst out of the hills to the south and made for the gate which Raymond's men now guarded. Presumably the sultan hoped to punch a hole in their line and gain access to his capital. But Raymond's men were spoiling for a fight. Many had left home ten months before with pious violence in their hearts, and only now were they face to face with the enemy. The close combat did not suit the horse archers either. They needed space in order to make their superior firepower tell. The southern French took heavy casualties, but they outnumbered Arslan, whose men were met with row after row of determined foot soldiers. The longer the nomads stayed locked in combat, the more vulnerable they became, and sure enough, as the morning wore on, Bohemond and Godfrey appeared atop their horses in full armour, hundreds of experienced cavalrymen behind them. They charged into the Turkic flank, and Arslan immediately fled for the hills from which he'd come. It was an ecstatic moment for the Crusaders. Their first clash with the enemies of God, and they had emerged victorious. They had done so in impressive fashion too, given that they were taken by surprise and had no overall command structure. In traditional Byzantine fashion, a set of decapitated heads were dispatched to Constantinople for Alexius to show to the crowds. 
while another batch were catapulted over the walls of Nicaea as a warning. The emperor must have been pleased, right? His gamble seemed to be paying off. Latin muscle really could take on the Turks, and now the path was clear to grind Nicaea into submission. Perhaps. It's entirely possible, though, that Alexius was mildly disappointed by how events had played out. Unbeknownst to many of the rank-and-file Latins, while they were out risking their lives, the Byzantines were deep in negotiations with Nicaea's garrison. Alexius was yet again in a difficult position. He desperately wanted to retake Nicaea, and if the Crusaders stormed the walls and then handed it back to him, that would be a good thing, but it would not be ideal. The emperor was well aware of the realities of war. He knew that if the Crusaders broke through the gates, they would sack the city. Regardless of its glorious Christian past and its Christian population, everyone knew how that would play out. Those were Roman citizens living in Nicaea, so obviously Alexius didn't want that to happen. And even if you take basic human sentiment out of things, those people were hard to replace. Not to mention the PR of it all. Talk about making a desert and calling it peace. Did Alexius want to be remembered as the man who brought Latins in to slaughter the Orthodox? There was also the politics to think about. The Crusaders had promised to hand over every Roman city they took, but what if they didn't? What if they changed their mind and decided to hold the city as a bargaining chip? Then they could call the shots. If you want Nicaea back, O Emperor, you better cough up. So despite calling the Crusaders to help him, despite directing them to Nicaea, and despite feeding and supplying them throughout the siege, Alexius didn't really want them to succeed. As the Latins set up their camp outside the city, the Vasilevs dispatched an embassy to the Turkic garrison. His chief negotiator was a trusted officer named Manuel Vutumitis. Manuel brought gifts and letters from Alexius, imploring the Turks to hand over the city to imperial agents. Not only will you live, he promised, but you will be richly rewarded if you do so. You can even go on serving your sultan afterwards. Safe passage and a bag of gold? Come on, what are you waiting for? We're told that the soldiers were tempted, but when news came that Kilij Arslan was on his way, they showed Vutumitis the door. In the aftermath of the sultan's defeat, Alexius increased his letter-writing campaign, but the Turks refused to buckle. They held out hope that Arslan would return to save them. Besides, the walls of Nicaea were very high. The garrison could see the crusaders' moves hours ahead of time, and they only had to defend three sides of the city, remember. They had stockpiled plenty of food in advance, and they could still access the lake to get supplies and messages from the surrounding countryside. There was no reason to lose hope yet. Now that the Crusaders had the city surrounded, it was time to make some choices. A council of princes was formed so that the leading nobles could make decisions collectively. They established a common fund through which booty could be divided and expenses shared. And then they agreed to begin work on siege equipment, which they would use to take Nicaea's walls down. 
Given the size of the city's battlements, it was thought that bombardment would do little damage. But catapults were built to try and at least clear defenders away from a section of the walls. Various assaults were made over the coming weeks, an attack using scaling ladders was easily foiled, while some of Godfrey's men constructed a bombardment screen using oak beams, which collapsed, killing twenty men. The more experienced Raymond had a master craftsman build him a testudo, a sturdy, sloping-roofed bombardment screen which survived the rain of missiles the defenders threw at it. His men used it to undermine a tower on the southern walls by the 1st of June. Having dug below its foundations, they inserted strong beams to hold it in place. Then, once the tunnel was deep enough, they filled it full of branches and kindling and set it on fire. When the beams burnt through, the top of the tower suddenly collapsed. But it was nearly nightfall, and the crusaders couldn't press an attack. When they awoke the next morning, they discovered that the Turks had worked through the night to reinforce that section, and no attack would be possible. As the siege wore on, Alexius crossed the Bosphorus and set up shop at Pelicanos, which was on the other side of the Gulf of Nicomedia from Kibitos. From there, he could keep tabs on the siege while also directing the supply train. A vast fleet of ships was going back and forth to Kibitos, bringing food and materials from across the Byzantine world. Wagons choked the road from Nicomedia to Nicaea. The emperor was determined that the besiegers should not want for anything. Despite this vital effort, some in the crusader camp questioned why the emperor was not amongst them, which seemed like a reasonable question, given they were risking their lives to retake his city. Anna says that he did not want to camp with the Latins, utterly outnumbered as he would have been, which is a perfectly reasonable excuse. When the emperor went on campaign with his own army, the entire camp was built around him. Everyone knew their place. If a night attack came, no one would trample through the imperial tent to get to their post. No such guarantee could be made for the crusaders nor should Alexius have given potential assassins such an opportunity to get to him. As Antony Cordellus points out, his presence would have made no difference to the siege. The crusaders had all the men they needed. He was better placed out of harm's way, making sure that the supplies kept moving. Feeding 70,000 people for the duration of a seven-week siege was a serious challenge, and even the anti-Byzantine historians have nothing negative to say on this point. Nevertheless, his absence was commented upon, and has been ever since. By the 3rd of June, the final crusaders had arrived at Nicaea. The men under Stephen of Blois and Robert of Normandy now made camp outside the walls. But after they'd been there for a week, the Council of Princes agreed that their tactics weren't working. It was clear that as long as the Turks had access to the lake, their blockade would have no bite. Every time they assaulted the walls, the defenders met them with vigour. Their morale didn't seem to be depleted by a month behind human bars. In fact, the Turks had responded to decapitated heads being hurled at them by dangling the bodies of dead crusaders over their battlements and leaving them to rot in the sun. The council sent word to Alexius that he needed to bring ships over to the lake to complete the encirclement. 
The only problem was that there was no navigable river leading to Lake Ascanius. But the emperor agreed with their suggestion and had some ships dragged ashore. He then mounted them on oxen-drawn carts, specially built to carry this strange cargo. It took another week for these vessels to be dragged the 18 miles to the lake, but once they were afloat, manned by Byzantine crews, the siege could approach its endgame. The boats were launched at dawn, blaring trumpets and carrying imperial standards, causing panic in the city. The next day, a general attack was planned to try and seize a tower and open the gates. But of course, Alexius didn't really want this to happen. So in advance of the attack, he dispatched Vutumites into the city to negotiate. Manuel carried with him another letter from Alexius, signed in gold ink, urging the garrison to accept his generous offer or be butchered in the streets. The Turks agreed. The next day, the 19th of June, the Byzantines joined in the full-scale attack on the walls. But unbeknownst to the Crusaders, Vutumites's men entered the city peacefully and raised imperial banners over the ramparts. Trumpets blared, announcing that the city had been taken. Cries of, Glory to thee, O God, went up around the walls. But for those with their blood up, it was an anticlimactic conclusion, and some sheathed their swords, frowned, and asked, Is that really it? As Anna explains, the Byzantine troops inside Nicaea were now intensely vulnerable. They were far smaller in number than the Turkic garrison, not to mention the Crusaders. If either side had turned on them, they would have been toast. So they quickly began sailing small groups of Turks across the lake from where they could ride to Alexius's camp. The emperor duly handed over gifts and coins as promised, and as was his wont, offered them even greater riches if they would switch sides. Once they'd departed, Alexius quickly acted to prevent any grumbling in the crusader camp. He dispatched wagon loads of copper coins to the rank-and-file Latins to celebrate their achievements, and he called the nobles to come to his tent to receive even greater prizes. Once again, Alexius brought out an array of astounding gold gifts for the princes as an attempt to compensate them for the loot that they had missed out on. Although some were satisfied, it was clear that many were not. The recovery of Nicaea was an outstanding Byzantine achievement. If you look at where Alexius was just two years earlier, there seemed no way he would be able to land a punch on the Turks. Now his banners waved in the breeze over Nicaea, and Kilij Arslan was in retreat. It was a masterful display of Byzantine diplomatic, logistic, and military capabilities. But that's the thing. Many in the Crusader camp saw it as a Byzantine achievement. It didn't feel like an Allied victory. The Latin chronicles reveal all sorts of misgivings about what had occurred. The more worldly felt that they were being denied the immense riches that Nicaea must hold, and that Alexius's presence, no matter how generous, were a lesser reward. While the pious expressed discomfort at being treated like mercenaries, 
They were here to liberate Christians. Alexius's back-patting and gift-giving felt out of step with holy war. There was also just a general sense that the Crusaders were sacrificing more than the Byzantines. One Latin history talks about the graveyards which now lined the road between Nicaea and Nicomedia, full of Crusaders who'd died in battle or had succumbed to camp diseases. Very few Romans seem to have perished by comparison. It was becoming clear that the two sides had quite different priorities, and nothing illustrated this better than the fate of the Turkic garrison. Instead of being enslaved or paraded around in humiliation, it turned out that the men who'd killed so many brave crusaders got off scot-free. In fact, the emperor had paid them off and allowed them to return to their master. Those who fully understood what had happened were outraged. So you're telling me that we're going to have to fight those same men again in a few weeks' time? Whose side is Alexius on? Worse was to come a few months later. The highest-ranking prisoners taken at Nicaea were, of course, Kilij Arslan's wife and children. After a comfortable stay at Constantinople, Alexius returned them to the Sultan unharmed and with no ransom required. Here, then, was the clash of priorities. The Crusaders viewed the Turks as blood enemies who must be annihilated, whereas Alexius saw them as neighbours. To be defeated today, yes, but tomorrow, who knows? We may well need them as allies again. The assembled princes had to bow to Alexius's decisions at this stage, and there was, of course, a logic to what he'd done. By offering such generous terms, it made it more likely that future garrisons would hand over their strongholds. But there were some in the Crusader camp who clearly felt that a brutal sack would have sent an equally strong message. Byzantine pragmatism was always slightly at odds with the crusading ethos. Urban had so successfully dehumanized the Turks that for Alexius to be kind to them felt like a betrayal of the cause. It's not clear how well all of this was understood throughout the Crusader camp. Stephen of Blois again seems oblivious and writes home in good spirits about their success, and I'm sure there were many who were pleased to not have to storm the city. Now was the time to celebrate. Services of thanksgiving were held, much wine was consumed, and prisoners from the People's Crusade, who'd been stuck inside the city, were set free. It was a particularly sweet victory for Alexius. He hadn't set foot in Asia for 20 years, and now, finally, his life's work was beginning to bear fruit. In her history, Anna praises her father for pulling the wool over Latin eyes. But in the moment, the Vasilevs gave no hint of that. The full details of what Vutumitis had done were kept hidden, and he was full of praise for the Crusaders, again trying to overwhelm them with his generosity and kindness. Next time, the Crusaders begin their long march across Anatolia. Well aware of the dire threat they present, Kilij Arslan begs the Danishmen to lend him some troops and picks his spot for an ambush. 
The two sides would meet near Dorylaeum for a battle that would determine the fate of Western Anatolia. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.